Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, rate strategist, and I'm joined today by only one global market specialist, Giles Gale. Uh, so Giles, you've got the uh, lucky job this week of, of talking to the US and Europe. Uh, let's start with the US because, uh, well, I think we've probably had the most news out of the US this week, and, and certainly been, it feels like it's it's been the US that's been driving global rates markets. Um, so we, we're recording this on Thursday. We just had the minutes from the uh, last month's FOMC meeting um, overnight for us here in the UK. Uh, what did we learn from those minutes? Well, okay, I mean, it's been a volatile ride overall, to be honest with you. I'm just looking at the chart now, I have it in front of me. I mean, 25 basis points sell off in 10-year treasuries in, well, a week. Um, and, I mean, there's been a lot of chopping around within that over a few weeks. So, I mean, the, this is moving a lot. You know, I mean, maybe I'll just back up very slightly and mention that there were some um, important <coughs> Fed speakers as well who were, you know, one in particular, Mel Brainerd, who is renowned for having a track record as a particular, um, a particularly sort of outspoken and influential dove who you know, had some rather more hawkish things to say and <coughs> you know, really focusing on the quantitative tightening side of things. But, um, no, the the clear message I think from the FOMC overall, and that did come through in the minutes as well, is that the Fed is increasingly concerned about inflation. It increasingly wants to get rates higher and withdrawing accommodation faster um, than than even you know, recently. And so, you know, completely understandably markets have been reacting to that pushing higher in terms of what they're expecting from from the fed both at the front end and that's kind of propagated out the curve but of course we've had you know, quite a lot of discussion about you know, what's going on in things like curve inversion does that mean a, a recession and, and so on and so on and so on um so you know maybe those are things that we can come back to in future weeks Thinking further out the curve, then obviously, you know, we had learned from the minutes about faster uh, and bigger, perhaps, rate hikes than we've been originally expecting. But what about quantitative tightening? You know, we're expecting uh, a, a sorry, a May announcement on uh, you know active sales from from the Fed. Um, how did the minutes um, shed any light on or change that view, at, if at all? Well, you know, I think that there are two things. I mean, we, I think markets were uncertain whether quantitative tightening might begin in May or, or whether it would be announced in May, maybe start in, in June. It seems like it's increasingly likely that the start will be in May now. And then there was some discussion in, in the minutes about the, the size of the runoff. And you know, just to, to remind people the way that this, this works, um, there are, the, the Fed holds a lot of short-term you know, short paper um, and will continue to hold a lot of short-term paper for years to come. If they just allow that to redeem, <clears throat> then they, the balance sheet will actually shrink reasonably quickly. And so what they do is they say, okay, fine, we'll, you know, we'll take it as it comes, but we won't let it shrink any faster than certain caps that we, uh, that, that we set. And so you know, effectively, because of the profile of what they hold, the, I mean, within reason, the the caps will put you know, will will pretty much determine the pace of balance sheet runoff, and so what the minutes seemed to suggest was that the 
the pace is gravitating towards uh, a 60 billion cap for for treasuries and a 35 billion cap for uh, for, for for mortgages. So no, total about 95 billion. Now that's pretty. I, mean, I guess that that you know, overall is an acceleration compared to maybe what people had in mind. You know, um, you know, we've had long discussions about the degree to which quantitative tightening necessarily matters at all, because of course all the action is at the front end where there isn't any meaningful duration impact. And I don't think this is the time to get into that right now, but it is interesting that quantitative tightening seems to have been put on the global agenda by this, um, by Brainard. And you know, we've of course from the Euro side been saying that it's actually the main thing, um, you know, much more than rate hikes this year. And it seems like we've had finally the market sort of come round to our way of seeing things a little bit, but again, provoked by the US on this occasion. So you know, just to finish off these thoughts, we had a disinversion um, of the uh, US curve <laughs> as a result of that, um, because- Disinversion, is that a technical term? term? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfectly valid term. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> invented it. <laughs> Maybe I have. But anyway, so there was a, there was a disinversion because, um, because obviously the, you know, I guess the market sort of figured, well, the emphasis is maybe a little bit more on quantitative easing side or quantitative tightening side, uh, rather than maybe there's a quid pro quo at the, the front end. Um, but maybe also, and you know, this is another thing that I'll just leave as an open question. I mean, you know, the, for, for a year now, I think that the concern has been about consensus steepeners and the degree to which those have been squeezing the curves globally flatter and maybe this is a sign that the consensus is now in flatness. I guess just before we move on, because you know you you kind of segue nicely into other regions there with regard to quantitative tightening becoming the theme. But but just before we do move on to those, to wrap up the Fed discussion, because since we uh, last spoke on Bondcast, um, our US uh, economics colleagues have updated their Fed call in terms of what they're expecting for rate hikes this year. So could you just um, you know update listeners on that? Because if we start talking about that, they they might be a bit surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, right, get your pencils out and take note. So we now think that we're going to have three successive 50 basis point rate rises from the Fed. Um, and then after that, for the remaining three meetings of the year, um, another three successive 25 basis point rate hikes. And so that would land us in the range for the Fed funds target. I think it's two, two and a half to 275. Uh, for the uh, for the end of the year, which is a little bit above the dots. Um, and the last I looked, although I'd have to check given the volatility, it was a little bit above where the market was as well. Um, but it's there or thereabout. And then we expect the, the funds target range to continue to rise in the, in the early part of next year to end up at three to three and a quarter. Okay, right. Um, so Imogen, it's your turn now because you build me as the only market specialist on the on the podcast. But of course, I'm not. <laughs> You'll be far too modest. So listen, um, no, it's probably a good time, um, you know, given all the chat about QT, um, to talk about what this, uh, you know, what the situation is in in the UK. Um, you know, we're almost approaching that one percent threshold, and 
in, in bank rate where they said that they would consider active sales and uh, with the Fed um, expected to announce soon. Um, and the focus will inevitably shift um, to a greater extent towards the, the Bank of England's QT. Now, so what are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, the, the fact that this 1% threshold that the Bank of England announces is obviously approaching, we think, and, you know, strong consensus is that it comes at the next meeting. And, and like you say, this Fed has kind of triggered a global conversation about quantitative tightening, means that this is going to return to the forefront of the discussion in the UK. Um, I think that there's a few things that are important to note. The first of all is that the Bank of England wording is that the process will begin at 1%. Um, my view is that's probably deliberately ambiguous because what does the process really mean? Does that mean they start doing the background work um, when we get to 1% or do they start active sales? Um, there's nothing so far to suggest that any of this kind of background work or, or working groups in terms of what this impact might be has already taken place. Um, so it, it doesn't seem like they're in any rush. Uh, I certainly think that's going to be addressed in the May meeting because obviously that's when we think they, they do get to that 1%. But, but so far it doesn't seem like they're either in any rush to do so, or are particularly viewing this as a uh, monetary policy lever or a monetary policy tool. You know, they've been very clear that any active sales will be gradual and they'll be, you know, with a uh, subject to market conditions and with a view of, of not trying to, um, I guess, control the, the yield curve in particular. Um, so with all that in mind, I think it's probably, you know, given that we, we don't have much information to go on, our kind of broad base case at the moment is that a gradual rundown of the stock probably looks like something like that they would want to unwind pretty much all of their pandemic purchases, which is almost equivalent to halving their kind of stock of gilt purchases over the next five years, let's say, which when you add in the kind of active runoff of, um, sorry, the natural runoff of the portfolio implies active sales in, a, in our base case of around uh, 50 billion a year beginning in 2023, we think. Okay, um, and so <laughs> bottom line then, what does it mean for, for gilt yields? And I have in mind um, an eye-popping chart that you showed me this morning. <laughs> yes well listener well not sure what's going to come out first the podcast or my note which I'm still writing <laughs> uh, but one or the other will will can well the note will have this chart and hopefully listeners if they have access to our notes will be able to access that but I think that the conclusion is really that you know as we've talked about with reference to the Europe and, and also the UK on this podcast so many times before is just that you know supply net of uh, Bank of England purchases is going to shift significantly higher over the next couple of years. And, and that shift from 2022 versus 2021 is big, but that's only going to get bigger over, over the coming years. You know, if you look at gross gilt supply net of APF purchases, the average of that between 2012 and 2021 is somewhere around 100 billion. And if you look at it between, you know, our expectations of, of how the runoff might look like plus the cgncr numbers taken as our kind of forward-looking guilt supply numbers that that number doubles to over 200 so it's a really big shift which 
you know, obviously implies uh, bearish pressures to, to gilts, we think, particularly at the long end of the curve. Um, although, you know, that has to be taken in context of, of everything else that's going on in terms of bank rate expectations and global conditions, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but essentially, uh, when it comes to our gilt model, you know, we estimate that that every 10 billion of, of gilt stock rundown of, of the APF is around worth around three basis points on, on 10-year gilt yield. So that 50 billion, you know, announcement of a potential 50 billion of, of sales next year could be worth, we think, about 15 basis points um, of upward pressure in 10-year in gilts. Yeah, I mean, I was particularly taken by that chart that just shows how many gilts we're going to get over the next three, four or five years. I mean, it really, it really is. I mean, I, I, I wonder to what extent people really realise how, how how much of a change we could be on the verge of here. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. I mean, we've had this discussion so many times on on the European side as well, but it really doesn't feel like um, and either of the European markets, Europe or UK, are, are pricing in, you know, how much more supply we're going to get with with central banks stepping away fully. So speaking of which, then let's move on to the ECB. Um, we have the meeting next week, of course. Um, but before then, we've had the minutes from the last meeting this week, uh, or just now, actually, as, as we're recording this, hot off the press. Uh, now, a reminder for our listeners that these were the minutes from the meeting where they surprised on the hawkish side by um, recalibrating the tapering of purchases to a much faster pace than, than we were expecting. But since, you know, uh, you know, big hitters, I would say, on the ECB Governing Council have come out and been slightly more dovish than, than the tone of that meeting might have suggested. So did we really learn anything new from these minutes? Or do you think it was kind of old news, given how the tone has shifted between some council members since then? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, and I'm going to say straight away that it's a long document and I haven't had time to fully digest it yet. But I mean, it, 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 it seems like, I mean, well, you can certainly see the way that there was a um, you know, kind of push and pull between those you know, on either side of, uh, of, of the debate that we, we know well. Um, you know, it, it seems like overall, you know, there was a bit of a hawkish lean. Um, you know, clearly, there were people who were pre pressing for an end date to uh, APP, and you know, there's you know, quantitative easing in the summer. Some discussion of um, you know, the, the contingent who would like to see a, a Q3 rate hike, which is earlier than we have penciled in, but nonetheless obviously can't be ruled out and I hasten to add is far from being ruled out by the market in fact the market um, has that nailed on as a strong base case now so no let's let, let's see I mean I no, I mean maybe it's better to just get on to our uh, our expectations for the ECB next week <laughs> it's slightly <laughs> unusual to be honest with you to have such you know, to only have one week between those minutes and the um and the, and the meeting itself of course yeah, it felt really soon to me. I must admit, I only really realised at the beginning of this week that that, that was the calendar. But you are right. Let's not be backward looking. Let's think about the future. Uh, so <laughs> what are our expectations for next week then? Like I said, we had a big kind of policy recalibration at the last meeting. Um, is Does this feel like it's going to be more of a placeholder meeting, given that uncertainty is still high? They've just adjusted policy. Or do you think actually... Um, given the kind of global developments that we're going to hear more from them, I guess, particularly around um, the, the path of, of rate hikes in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, having sort of, having half suggested there that I might actually have something dramatic and interesting to say about <laughs> I, I actually don't particularly. I mean, no, the, the outlook is equally clouded by exactly the same clouds as it was last uh, last time around. And so, no, we know what, no, obviously we know what's at stake here. I mean, growth is clearly you know, showing now signs completely expected signs, to, I know I should stress, but I mean, the the expected signs of slowing growth that are, are now showing up. And you know, we obviously have the same concerns about inflation that we that we had, uh, when was it, four weeks ago. And you know, so into that, I don't really see why there would be any need for the ECB to change anything. Um, so essentially what we're looking for them to do is to, repeat the main points from the last meeting. Um, but in particular, you know, I think, I think yeah, they will, I mean, clearly we're expecting to confirm that their timetable for ending QE uh, over the next two and well, nearly three months um, is still in place. Um, no, I think that they'll be invited to, to talk about the timeline for for rate rises but won't necessarily be drawn out particularly on on that they'll just fall back on their language of uh, you know sometime um <laughs> after we finish qe and and that's it no we're not looking for any big new innovations around um, around policy just the usual you know, ex expression of concern about the possibility that you know, if there's any kind of sign of financial fragmentation, then they, then they will fall back first on flexibilities, and then you know, they have the uh, the ability to innovate within their toolbox, and so on and so on. So, no, not I, I, I don't see this as a big one. Bottom line. Fair enough. They can't all be big ones, can they? <laughs> um, okay, so moving away just lastly from central banks, because um, it feels like all we've discussed on this podcast recently has been central banks uh, and inflation and growth, but actually um, we've got a bit of political risk being reintroduced in Europe this week. Um, markets are finally focused on uh, French elections. I think, you know, other other concerns have, have been higher up the list of late, but, but given the proximity um, and and also the fact that um, perhaps the polls are uh, or Macron's lead in the polls has been narrowing or a little bit volatile, but but narrowing of late uh, markets feel like uh, or markets attention has certainly uh, returned to, to French political risk. So how do you view those risks and, and what does that really mean for markets? Well, okay, so you know, we, we highlighted the, the, the these risks I would like to emphasize um last friday as in well i guess by the time anyone listens to this a week ago and that was just just before markets started to to notice that actually maybe they were they were a little bit complacent about the the risk um that we may wake up in two and a half weeks with a a, a le pen presidency in france which no, I mean, not to get too much into politics, I think it's, it's safe to say that that's not an outcome that markets would, in general, welcome with, you know, too, too warmly, um, just because, you know, I mean, it's uh, the, 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 the less known entity, um, it, I mean, she has 
politics, you know, I mean, policies, for example, surrounding um, the NATO um, that would concern some, um, again, you know, taking a market's view here. And, and also, I think that there would, it would, it would potentially raise questions about the ability of France to, to really forge ahead with, um, you know, sort of, in improvements and deepening of, uh, of of the European Union with um, you know, partners like Italy and Italy and Germany, so you know, which are all things that markets tend to look forward to. Uh, hopefully, let's say, um, you know. So we've had a correction here in um, in French spreads, especially. And to be honest with you, I think it's probably enough at the moment. Um, you know, just looking at the last sort of 10, 20 polls, there doesn't actually seem to be any significant further momentum in uh, Marine Le Pen's favor, uh, in favor for that second round. Um, there were a couple of, there are a couple of polls which you know, got people concerned, but overall I didn't really see, I didn't really see that developing. That's not to say that in the next couple of weeks it can't, of course, um, and that's not to say that, you know, we won't be looking very carefully at the first round results for evidence of apathy on the left that might result in abstention, uh, un, you know, un, unhelpful abstention for Macron. Um, you know, the degree to which the right is, is energized and mobilized and, and so on, you know, all, all of those things will be looked at very, very carefully. Um, but no, there's still all to play for. I mean, there'll, there'll be debates, there'll be the potential for missteps. Um, <clears throat> the, you know, what happens in, in, in Russia is, is important in, in various ways that I won't get into at the moment. Um, but no, I mean, and, and there are ongoing you know, difficulties with, I mean, for, you know, just to take one example, Macron's, um, Use of, uh, of 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 consultancies, um, which has not played well with the French electorate, and you know, maybe that goes away. Maybe it you know, maybe it gets maybe it intensifies as um, as you know, as yeah, weaknesses are identified. And so, you know, the, I, I think the bottom line is that it's going to be a difficult couple of weeks potentially. Um, you know, with some with some volatility, but overall, I think that the the risks are priced for the information that we have now. Now, I just say that this mixes with the overall sense that as quantitative easing um, is, is 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 slowed, there is this question about how primary supply is uh, is taken down, and so you know, that then sort of becomes a, a separate question for France, but you know, potentially at a, at a bit of a, a, a sensitive moment, let's say. So let's just keep, keep, keep watching this and maybe in two weeks time, we can, um, we can take stock. <laughs> Sounds good. And just a reminder for any of our listeners that if you do have access to our kind of strategy notes on Agile, you can pick up the note that, that Giles mentioned around the French elections. We've also put um, a French election preview on our on-point website, so that's NatWest's um, Insight website for anyone who doesn't access our usual strategy notes via Agile. All right, with that then, let's finish there lots to talk about um, but a couple of busy weeks ahead as well lots to look forward to uh, so I look forward to catching up next week thanks Giles for joining me uh, and just a reminder to our listeners if they like today's episode don't forget to hit subscribe and the like button uh, to show your appreciation uh, and we'll chat again next week thanks see you soon